The second thing that happens when grace takes over in your life, first that you're enslaved, you enslave yourself to Jesus, and then you're, you're, secondly, you just learn to walk by the Spirit, not by yourself. If you truly understand grace, it's going to cause you to walk by the Holy Spirit's help, not by yourself. Now, you look at both of these, you're not involved in either one of them. If you get grace, you eliminate yourself. And, and Christ gets all the credit, the glory. He does the work of saving and sanctifying and helping you. And God himself, through the Holy Spirit, becomes your complete leader and teacher and instructor and guide and wisdom and counsel. And so part of the grace concept is that you remove yourself from the picture and you say, this has never been about me. It's not supposed to be about me. It's all about my king. It's all about my leader. And I'm supposed to... Walk completely led by the Spirit of God, not by myself. I don't get to make my own plans and do my own thing unless they fit within the plans of Christ. So, so we're going to see those things. And this morning, we're just going to talk about the, what it means to be enslave yourself to Christ, what it means to surrender yourself. I want us to look at this call to serve that Paul challenges the Galatians with because it comes out of a, a whole, chat, whole um, letter that he's written to the Galatians that says you're saved by grace. Please don't forget this. You're saved by grace. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You're saved by grace. You're saved by grace. You're saved by grace. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now just follow me. Saved by grace. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. You're free. Yes. Now what do I do with that freedom? What do I do with the freedom that I have? What does that freedom look like? And how does it translate? What does it look like when I really understand it? Chapter 5, verse 13. It's our verse for the day. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom to an opportunity for the flesh, but by love, that's agape, if you want to mark your Bibles, serve one another. You are called, you are called to um, freedom, and now I want you to Serve. That's the Greek word, doulos. It's the, the hardest word for slave you could have put in that verse. Um, the Holy Spirit put the hardest one in there. When Paul's writing this, he says, oh, we are so free. And we're free to run right back into bondage. But this bondage is a bondage to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he says, you're free. I want you to be, completely surrender your freedom back to the one who set you free. Um, and let yourself be given to God. Um, and so do loss means you completely get that you have no value. When you're a, a do loss servant, which is what this Greek word is, when you're a do loss servant, it means you eliminate your value of worth. And you say, I have no worth apart from the worth that I have in my master and doing what my master says and what his purposes and his pleasures and his plans are. I have no other worth. Now, I can tell you that Leonard Hopkins would have said that. Um, you know, the, the senior saint that stood in our pulpit back in June and, and preached to us had given his life to serving Christ. And uh, he, he found his worth, not in his work, but in the work of Christ. Now, I want to give you five truths this morning. Assuming my voice will do five. We're going to do five truths about what it means to be a bond servant. A doulos is a bond servant. And uh, so let's look at those five truths. Number one. A bondservant in Jesus' day owned absolutely nothing. You own nothing. There's a great book. I read it two or three times a year. I've had it since college. My wife, when she was my girlfriend, um, 
bought it for me. It's, it's a book by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. Highly recommend you put that on your shelf as a physical book. And once a year, just go right back through it. It's, t- it's pretty tough reading because it's strong. Um, and he has a chapter, just the, title, the chapter of the title will help you. Chapter 3 is titled, The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. How blessed it is to possess nothing. And Tozer's argument all through there is Matthew 5, uh, verse 3, where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Tozer's argument is that you are so, we are so blessed as Christians that we don't have to have anything because he will provide everything we have. And then if you'll take everything that you do have, every possession you have and say, This belongs to you. This guitar, Lord, belongs to you, not to me. Thanks for giving it to me and let me use it and share it. But it belongs to you. My compound bow is one of my other favorite things in life. My compound bow that I get to shoot in the field with and practice and take hunting, it belongs to him, not me. And, and so if, if the Lord requires that of me somehow to give away or to help somebody with, then we're going to do that because nothing I have belongs to me. Your cars, your trucks, your homes, um, your clothes, none of it belongs to you. It belongs to him. And when you begin to get that in your head, you become a grace-based, do-loss servant. And you say, oh, I understand grace so well that I truly own nothing. God the Father is the father of all good gifts. James chapter 1 says he's the father of all good gifts. And it says he will share his abundance with us from the heavens. Philippians 4, 19, write that one in. Uh, James 1, 17, Philippians 4, 19. He, he will share all the abundance from the storehouses of heaven with us. So why do we have to possess anything? We just get to live with the master. That's what a doulos servant was. Actually, when he was purchased from the slave block, um, if he owned any usually they were naked when they were on the slave block, and he was purchased as a naked slave. But if he owned any clothes or had any possessions, they were literally burned and discarded, and they went to the master, and the master provided everything for that slave and said, everything you have now is mine. The, the, the place you're going to sleep, the clothes you're going to have, the food you're going to eat, it's all provided by me. The, the great part for us is our master is the king of kings and lord of lords who is so full of grace and love for us that he's going to abundantly bless us as we learn to live as servants who choose to own nothing and who take all our wealth and all our political or social or intellectual strengths and powers and say, this all belongs to you. It's all for you. And I want to ask you this morning, just as we finish that point, how well are you caring for the things of the Lord, the things your master has given you, your homes, your, your automobiles, your, your families, um, the relationships you have at church? How well are you caring for those things that have been entrusted to you? Because they really belong to him. They really are gifts from him, not from us. Secondly, if you get what it means to be a bond slave, a bond servant, you are clearly a slave. Um, you were meant to follow orders. Um, the Bible says that we are to follow the directions and instructions of the Lord. And a person who was a bond slave in, in the time of Jesus and Paul's writings here, a person who was a bond servant did not give orders. They took orders. Every day they would wake up and do what their routine was to get them in front of the master or whoever the master's boss was, the slave that was in charge of them. And they were just waiting for instructions. A a person who understands grace says, you know what, Lord? It's morning and today is your day and I'm your servant and I'm going to follow you and I'm just waiting on orders and directions. Um, Now, the Lord gives us some liberty and, and slaves sometimes were given liberty 
to, you know, just take care of that for me. It wasn't necessarily told exactly how. I just want you to go take care of that field, plant that field. So now you got to go to town and buy some things and those kind of things. But, but in reality, we're supposed to wait for his instructions. And the owner of the state who had purchased him was somebody that would, would take care of the other needs he had so that a slave recognized, I am only a slave. I am clearly a slave. I, I don't have any direction without a master. I don't. I just wait for the master to give direction. That's what it means to be a grace-based Christian, by the way. You say, you know, I'm going to follow the Lord in this. Um, I've talked with several of you, even recently I've talked to some, and uh, many times over the years I've talked with folks who, who wrestle when their company is going in a direction that doesn't seem to be godly. And I say, you know, you need to listen to, the, to your real master above your boss master long enough to get a clear direction. If, if God wants you to follow that company and support your, your family through that, that's fine. But if they're going in an ungodly direction, you're going to have to pull back at some point. And God's going to give you that direction. And the real master gets the direction there. That's why you have to recognize you're a, a servant and slave of his. And then thirdly, you've been bought with a price. A good, honest, grace-based Christian. We, re, we say this so much at the church, I don't even know I need t- to remind you of it. But you've been bought with a price by the master. 1 Corinthians 6, I'm going to read these verses to you. It says, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Acts 20, 28, a verse that our elders use on the, um, a lot of times when we're just together. It's a verse that warns us as elders. Be on guard for yourselves and for the church flock, which is... is among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church which he purchased with his own blood. You are blood-bought saints today. Blood-bought saints. You were purchased by Christ. And so we were bought with a price, and it wasn't a small price. It was the life of Jesus Christ that bought you to be part of his family. First Peter 1, Knowing you were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold from your... <coughs> Feudal ways of life uh, inherited from your forefathers, but you were you were redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We were redeemed by the blood of Christ. That's what bought you off the slave block. By the way, the word redeemed in that verse, First Peter, literally is the Greek word they used when a slave was bought. When a slave was purchased, they you were redeemed. You're purchased and bought off a slave block and redeemed from, the, from that slavery moment. And, and so the apostle Peter is saying to us, we were bought with the precious blood. That's what he had to give in order to buy us back from the sin uh, life that we were in. And then Revelation 5, almost wanted to sing this song this morning. Of course, our, my voice wasn't strong. But Revelation 5 says they sang a new song saying, here's what we're going to sing in heaven. We get around the throne of Christ. We're going to say these words to him as Christians. Blood-bought saints, we're going to say, Worthy art thou to take the book to break the seals, for thou wast slain. And you did purchase for God with your blood men from every tongue and people and nation. You purchased with your blood men, mankind, men and women from every tongue Every tribe and nation, you were bought. And when we get to heaven, we're going to celebrate that you were bought with that. We're going to remind ourselves that that makes him worthy. So you're clearly a slave. You've been bought with a price. And then the fourth thing is that your goal is to please the master. A true servant, a good, 
doulos servant has one main focus or purpose all the days of his life. The plan for his life is to make his master blessed and happy, to care for his master, to care for the estate, for the family, for, uh, for his future in a way that can cause the master to be without concern or anxiety. A good servant, a good steward is not so much worried about pleasing others about as he is about pleasing his master. This is where Christians get in trouble sometimes. We try to make ourselves look good in front of people or try to do things that please people. And sometimes God's calling us to step across and, and make a statement for him or please God beyond that. And that's what a good servant that understands grace is all about. I'd like you to turn to Colossians chapter 3 with me. Will you turn in your Bibles to Colossians 3? I want to read this verse to you. Colossians 3 and verse 22 says, Slaves, obey your earthly master in everything and do it not when their eyes are on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence to the Lord. Paul's telling slaves, I want you to serve your earthly masters as unto the Lord with reverence for God. Serve your masters. Verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as you're working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Everything you do, uh, Brad, when you're cutting meat, you're cutting meat for the Lord Jesus. You know, I know it pays, you know, somebody else some money and you get a little money of that and then the company gets bigger money and somebody else is going to get that product. But when you're cutting meat, you're, if you cut it for the Lord Jesus, you're, you're serving him. You know, when, when you're doing your work, you know, Andy, when you're doing the flowers, you're, you're, you're serving God with that moment. And you, 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 you distribute those flowers and you take care of your responsibilities exactly as you would for the Lord, not for just for your bosses. You understand? It's not just for your boss that you're doing these things. You're actually working for the Lord. And uh, it helps when you, when you get that in your head. You know, Robbie, the, the new job you have at the edge, <laughs> you've had to mentally wrestle with a lot of issues there. But you're doing it for the Lord, not for the company only. If you'll get in your head that you're doing it for the Lord, it takes a whole lot of the challenge out of stressing over some of that. And you can just offer up to the Lord, this is my day for you. You give me directions. You let the Holy Spirit lead me, and I'll do it at, to the best of my ability for your glory in your honor, look at verse or the fifth one, and this was, this one's the great one because it's really what Galatians five is all about. You choose to serve the master even though you've been set free. That's what Paul's saying. You've been set free. You're free. Now I want you to enslave yourself back to the master, and it's a picture from the book of Exodus where slaves were set free. Every so often, the Israelites were commanded by the law to release slaves. Um, you can serve them, that you can use them for so many years, and then you just release them. Some of those slaves didn't want to be released. They're like, oh, I love my master. I love what I get to do for him. I love being a part of his life and his family, and so I'm going to enslave myself permanently. And those were called bond servants. <clears throat> there was a ceremony in Israel you had to go through. You'd take your ear <laughs> to a doorpost of the home, and they would take an awl, a punch, <laughs> and put a punch right on the bottom of your ear, kind of an early... Uh, painful piercing I would imagine and uh, but they would pin your ear to the door and punch a hole in it 
right there, and the blood from your ear would end up on the door frame. And it was a way to say, and, and when you saw a servant who had a pierced ear, a hole punched in his ear, and uh, probably all kinds of infection there for a while, but when you saw that, you went, you know what, that guy has fallen in love with his master. And he was set free, but he won't leave. He's going to stay with his master. You know what Christians are supposed to be? Bond servants. We're supposed to say, oh, God did so much for me to set me free. But I ran right back to him and said, I want to serve you and enslave myself to you for the rest of my life. That's what a true servant is like. And that's the ways that we're supposed to serve um, the Lord. And, and you have to have that in your head. Paul's emphasis in the whole book of Galatians is you were saved by grace. Now surrender yourself back to Christ and say, I don't want to be free from you. By the way, people, people challenge churches like us that just teach grace. Grace, 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 grace. All you ever talk about, grace. You know what's going to happen? Your people are going to fall into sin all the time. They're going to just live in sin, 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 because they're going to think they're free from sin. You know, and you go, no, not really. The whole point of Galatians is fall in love with grace, and it will help you fall in love with Christ. And then you don't want to live in sin. You actually want to walk by the Spirit, and you want to serve Him with all the days of your life. I want to challenge you that there's three main ways to serve the Lord and uh, three ways to apply your servant status, as it were, since we're choosing to be bond servants. And the first one is you need to serve the king himself. We sang it in our song, Jesus, you are my king. Um, um, amazing love. How could it be that a, you, my king, would die for me? We forget sometimes we're, we're, we live in a, a country that calls itself a democracy, a republic, actually. Um, but we forget that as Christians, we're theocratic. We've got one king, one. Not two kings, not five kings. We have one. And the one king that we serve is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we need to do everything for him. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Look in Romans 12 with me. It says, I urge you, therefore, brethren. King James says, I beseech you. So it's a word that means almost beg. I'm begging you. And by the way, Romans 12 is really the Galatians 5 and 6. Romans 12 is... 10, 11 chapters of theology that says we're set free from our sins by the work of the cross, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that Christ has baptized us into him through the cross. And so Romans chapter 12, he says, I urge you, therefore, now here's how we're going to apply that, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You serve him by presenting yourself to him. You give service to Christ by presenting yourself to him and saying, I want to be yours. I want to be your your voice today in my family. I want to be your voice today in my business. I want to be your voice today in my community, in my neighborhood. I want to be your voice today in the conflicts of our politics um, that we discuss at work or at home. I want to be your voice today. We present ourselves to say, I am serving the king. And this is our first and foremost responsibility, is to serve Christ. We're to give all our all to the one who gave his all. Now, I want to make this real clear. I want to spend just a minute on here. We don't need to serve Christ. This is hard. This took me years to figure out, by the way. 
you don't need to serve Christ in the sense of I owe him a debt. Now, we do owe him a debt, but it's a debt we can never repay, and he knows that already. It's clear in God's head. Nothing you could do would ever repay for the, son, for the blood of Jesus having been sacrificed on the cross. Nothing you could do would ever repay that. It's not even gonna be, you're not even going to come close. So we're not trying to repay him. What God wants you to do is to live in grace and live in a way that says, I don't need to work out of a sense of owing him. I want to work out of a sense of loving him. There's a huge difference when you owe somebody something and when you love somebody. You guys know uh, one day a week I usually do some yard work and I end up helping people sometimes that are in need for free. It's very interesting to me when I owe somebody work that I have to get done and how much harder, how hard I want to work at that and make that right. I want to to be happy. But when when I don't owe them anything and I just want to do some work to prove my love for them, it's amazing to me how much easier that work is. Even stuff you hate, trimming bushes and dragging them back to the trailer and getting all, you know, holly sticker bushes all over you and all that stuff that's just miserable sometimes. It's like, oh, but I'm doing this for the Lord and for this person's love. They're going to come home and not even know who did it. You know, you surprise them sometimes, freak them out. And, and you're like, this is so cool. It's so exciting to get to do it for that. And Christ wants us to serve him fully by grace, not because we owe him, but because we love him. So will you, will you just evaluate yourself when you're serving? Sometimes as Christians, we get into that I owe thing. And you know what it leads to? If you start trying to add up your work, you're creating that list again that says, hey, I, I've done all this for the Lord, and this is why the Lord loves me. No. He loves you just like you were in your brokenness and in your sin. There is no list you have to make for him to love you. And he will always love you. The reason I'm doing all these things is because I love him. And I want to demonstrate my love for him. So I'm challenging you to let your service for the Lord be serving the king. Now, I will just tell you it's exhausting to serve the king. It's supposed to be. I really think part of the energy that uh, the Lord's given you in your life is supposed to be fully dedicated to serving him beyond whatever you're doing at your work. And uh, so it's supposed to be exhausting and tiring. And uh, sometimes you're going to have to, to um, you know, the Bible says don't grow weary in well-doing. Sometimes you have to evaluate, am I getting weary in it? A lot of times it's the mental problem that you have. You forget you're doing it for him because of your love for him. That'll take some of that weariness away. In Romans 6 and 7, uh, Romans chapter 7 verse 6 speaks to this. Uh, we're to serve in the newness of the spirit, Paul says, not in the oldness of the letter. Don't serve by the law. He says, serve in the newness of the Spirit. The Spirit says, just love me. That's what I want you to do. Just love me. And do this stuff for love. And then, number two, we're to serve not just the king, but we're to serve the kingdom, his kingdom on earth. And the, and the work of the kingdom that he's started in the Gospels and, and is bringing about now. Galatians 5, of course, verse 13, serve one another. And then John 13, verse 34 says, a new commandment I give you, that you love, agape, one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13 is where Jesus says this new commandment. Does anybody, you don't have to answer out loud, but just think for a minute. Do you know what happens in John 13? It's a very interesting chapter. The the chapter begins with a verse that says, um, Jesus having loved his very own, loved him to the end 
And then it, it has this phrase that says, and now his time had come. There were several times where Jesus was going through villages to do things, and even when his first miracle is presented to him by his mother, she says, hey, they've run out of wine. Can you help? He says, you know, now's not my time. It's not time for me like that. And he had to adapt the circumstances and, and, and help without, you know, revealing himself for all that. And all through the Gospels, there's a couple of places where he says, you know, they, they tried to capture him, but they couldn't because it wasn't his time. But in John 13, it says, now is my time. And then that verse occurs while Jesus is in an upper room with 12 men. And they're having a meal together. And when you read John 13 and Luke 22, you read all that together, you find that, that Jesus um, has made sure all their stuff was prepared for them. The food was brought in and prepared and all that. And then they're having a discussion at the table. They're having an argument at the table. You know what their argument is? Their argument is over who's the greatest at the table. They're, fight, they're, they're beginning to talk as disciples, as Christ followers, about the greatness of themselves. And, and about... Um, what they've, maybe they're listing the things they've done for the Lord. Of course, Peter could go, hey, none of you have walked on water. Just making it clear. Nobody in this room except me. I know I fell, but hey, I walked. None of you have walked on water, okay? And they're probably saying, yeah, but you weren't here when he did this, and you didn't get to go see the transfiguration, and I did, and all that kind of stuff. So the disciples are beginning to argue about their greatness and kind of where they fit into the kingdom. That's John 13. You know what happens after that? Jesus literally leaves the table, goes over to the corner, gets a towel and a basin, and he walks over to where the disciples are. They're reclined at a table. The table would have been short. They're reclined at a table, and he's literally washing feet. He's rubbing the mud from between the toes of disciples who were just arguing about greatness. That's what Jesus is doing. He's rubbing their feet with a towel and cleaning the dirt out from between their toes. Now, they wore open-toed sandals, and they walked on dusty roads. would have been a laborious, complex little job. But it's not just anybody washing their feet. You know, you go, well, Peter went over and got that deal, and he said, well, I'll show you what greatness looks like. Watch this. And you go, man, Peter, that was awesome. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't John. It wasn't James. It was Jesus Christ, Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords, that knelt down in front of those men and serve them like a doulos slave. And in John 13, he says, what you've seen in me, that's how you live out grace and gospel. That's what it looks like. What you see in me like that, that's what it's supposed to be. You get on your feet before people and you wash, you get on your knees before people and you wash their feet and you help them and you help them and you help them and you help them. And they, they mock you and they treat you badly and you help them and you help them and help them. By the way, there were 12 disciples at the table when Jesus washed feet, 12. One of them's name was Judas. He washed the feet of the man who within probably minutes of that setting, if not an hour or so, he's going to be dismissed. Jesus is going to say, you go and do what you need to do. And Judas is going to go find the Pharisees in the temple He's going to say, hey, I, I know where they're going next. I know the, I know the lo y'all been looking for the location of Jesus, and you've been trying to figure out how to, how to find out where he is. I know where he's going to be. And for 30 pieces of silver, Judas betrays the location of Jesus so that the guards from the temple, 600 to 1,000 guards, can march into the Garden of Gethsemane led by Judas 
and betray Jesus. And Jesus washed 12 disciples' feet. He could have stopped the Jews and went, hey, dude, you're not on the team. Sorry, you're not one of us. Um, I'm serving, but I'm not serving all of you. But he didn't. He washed everybody's feet. So it doesn't matter if they're an enemy. It doesn't matter if it's somebody. That, the Bible says we're to love everyone. And when we're serving in the kingdom, we're supposed to serve the king and the members of the kingdom. That's the body of Christ. You help each other. We don't pick at each other. We don't find flaws with each other and fault with each other. We help each other along the way. Does that make sense? And then lastly, you're to serve kingdom seekers. And that really fits everybody else. People that are outside the kingdom but maybe need to become a part of the kingdom. We're to serve them. I want you to look at Matthew 25, verse 34. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to this. I've used it as a reference many times. I think it's important that you see it physically on the page in your Bible. If you have a um, have an old-fashioned paper Bible, <laughs> Matthew 25, verse 34. <clears throat> this is the judgment passage where the sheep are separated from the goats. Those that are going to heaven and those that are going to hell are separated by the Lord himself, the king. Matthew 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right... Come, you who are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundations of the world. Think about that sentence. The king of kings is looking right at a group of people that you and I could be standing in. We should be standing in. We better be standing in. He's looking right at us and he says, Come, um, come, you who are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you for the foundations of the world. I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The righteous are going to say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will say to them, truly I say it to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it unto me. We're not just supposed to serve Christ, but by serving Christ, we do that when we serve others. When we, we stop and help needy people, when we find people in our neighborhood that are their homes are kind of run down and needy, and you go, man, I just wish they had fixed that up. I, one of the ladies I cut grass for, she really fusses about the rental house next door, and the people that live there are just impoverished. They're struggling for all they have. And the grass got so high this summer and uh, so I just went over there one afternoon and started cutting the grass. I didn't say anything to anybody. I found out who owned it, and I, I know that person. So if he got mad, I could, you know, say, hey, don't worry about it. But, but, uh, but I just cut that grass one afternoon. And, uh, and, of course, the ladies that I cut grass for, they, you know, hear a mower, and they're peeking out their window. And then they're like, why did you cut that person's grass? Did they pay you? And all that. No, they didn't pay me. They weren't even home. And they came home to a cut, cut yard. And, uh, well, we're going to go tell them. I said, please don't go make a big deal about this. I'm just trying to help them. And I was trying to help the ladies understand, look, instead of fussing at them, let's figure out a way to help them. Let's take them another level of love to say, we're your neighbors, and we're going to figure out a way to keep your yard up for you while you're struggling. You know, I found out as a single mom whose husband had ended up with some jail time, and, you know, the mower that she had, you know, wouldn't cut the grass because it had gotten too thick. She'd been out there kind of pushing it into the thick and it cut off, and, and she just needed some help. You know, and it wasn't hard to do that, but that's what it means. When you do it to the least of these, you do it unto him. 
And that was one of those days where I was cutting that yard going, hey, this is fun. I'm having a good time. This is great. It's a million degrees. It was July. It's like a million degrees out here, and I'm having a good time. So you serve the Lord with, with all your heart. And that's what Paul's saying. If you really get grace, if you really get grace, you're free. But don't use your freedom as an excuse to abandon grace. Actually enslave yourself back to the grace. Grace's highest call in your life is to serve. The highest call of grace is for you to become a servant of Christ.